It just strikes me to make a comment. Mr. Thomas has been speaking about Spurgeon and the downgrade and on the centenary of his death I attended a lecture about Spurgeon in Wales. He had preached in, as you might expect, quite a large number of chapels. But of those chapels, at that time, every single chapel that supported him in the downgrade was still open. Many were struggling, very small, but every single one was still open. Of the chapels and churches that didn't support him in the downgrade, only one was open, and that had become a Unitarian place. So effectively, the witness of God had been withdrawn from that. It's difficult to think of a more striking way of demonstrating these things. Well, we give thanks to God for his faithfulness and, as has been mentioned already in prayer, to his faithfulness in, to this organisation over nearly that same amount of time. And I do give thanks to you for the welcome. Well, our story is the glory, our, our overall title is The Glory of God. In Ezekiel, we have today the vision of Gog and Magog. We're going to be thinking of Hamangog, Magog, Gog, and Og. And more particularly, I want us to think about who Gog was, where from, when, why I don't believe he is the Antichrist, and why this whole passage occurs. We mentioned this afternoon that chapter 37 is one of the most well-known chapters of Ezekiel, because, I suppose, of the Christian heritage of the land, the term Gog and Magog are very well known. But actually, having said that, I suspect that most Christians, whatever definition one chooses to put on that, however wide or narrow, would pause and be careful how they answered who this was. Uh, the world knows of the two great statues in the Guildhall in London. Well, they haven't really got anything to do with this at all. Um, gather that just outside Cambridge there are the Gog and Magog hills. Well, again, clearly that's got nothing to do with this. But because of the heritage of um, biblical uh, things, uh, the, the terms are familiar to us. Rather strangely, on Wednesday, I found myself following a Mercedes-Benz car with a registration number, 46 GOG, but that's got nothing to do with it either, really. 
but I just thought this is, you know, everything is focusing in that direction. So, who then is Gog? Well, we have it set forth in as much detail as we have in God's words several times. He is referred to in here in verse 2, Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. And Ezekiel is instructed to prophesy against him. Now, we need to just be, be wary here because here we have one person, Gog, and one country, one land, Magog. In the book of Revelation, Gog and Magog are referred to as nations. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now, I've read to the end there because that's a very different conclusion of Gog and Magog to the one that we read earlier. So clearly this is not speaking about the same event. And as I've already said, Gog here is, Gog there in in Revelation is referring to a nation along with Magog. Whereas here, Gog is the chief prince. Now I ought to just say, um, I don't suspect it applies to anybody here, but it may be to others that are listening to this later on, that not all translations give this as the chief prince. The NIV, apparently, speaks of him, uh, of the land of Magog, the prince of Rush, of Meshech and Tubal. And this, uh, we're moving on now to where these people are from, this has led some to think that uh, there is a link with Russia. Well, Rosh is simply the Hebrew for head or chief. We know that sometimes we shall come across uh, a case later on where words that are names can sometimes be translated uh, and sometimes just exist as names. But um, I think that here this is the correct uh, interpretation that is the chief prince of Meshech. And it's significant that all of the other places here are biblical terms, whereas Rosh, although it appears on some maps, is not elsewhere mentioned in God's words. 
So, where are these people from? Well, the prince of Meshech. If we go back to Genesis chapter 10, it's significant that we find these terms here as we go through that table of the nations. Genesis 10 verse 1, Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tiras. And the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, and Rephath, and Tugmara. That's rather significant, isn't it? We have then the, several of those names mentioned here. The chief priests of Meshech. Meshech seems to have settled around the area of Mount Ararat in Anatolia. Tubal. Many think that this is the origin of the Iberians or the Basques, possibly the Italians as well. Or some have also thought that it's the origin of the uh, it can be rendered Tarbal, and again linking back to Anatolia, that which we think of as the southern area of Turkey, Asian Turkey, if you like. Then we have in verse 5 Persia, Ethiopia, or Kush, and Libya. Foot. These come in verse 6 of Hebrews 10. The sons of Ham, Cush and Mizraim. Mizraim everywhere else in English is translated Egypt, but the Hebrew for Egypt is Mizraim, and Foot, and Canaan. And then you'll notice verse 7 the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah, and Sabta, and Rama, and Sabdeka. And the sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. And they appear later on as those that are in verse 13, with the merchants of Tarshish, as those who are looking on in wonder at what is going on. And then verse 6, we've already mentioned Goma and Togmara. These are, it would seem, even more elusive. Some have thought that Goma is the origin of the Chimerians or the Gimerians who lived in the steppes and were attacked by um, the Assyrians in the 7th century. Some have thought they, lived, they moved out to Jutland as Kimbri 
or some even thought they were the origin of the Kumru, the Welsh. Um, Josephus says that they were the origins of the Galatians uh, in uh, Gaul. So there is a certain amount of um, question mark these things. But Togmara, again, most people think is linked to the Turks, the Turkic people, possibly the Khazars, which again takes us back to Anatolia. And of course, as far as Israel is concerned, these are all the north. We don't therefore need to go out to Russia and Germany and uh, see a great uh, massive um, conglomeration of, of races in that way, but this is quite a powerful enough gathering coming down against the people of God. Goma and all his bands, the house of Togmara of the north quarters and all his bands, and many people with thee. This is a huge confederate army and the chief of that army. The commander-in-chief is Gog. So when is this to take place? It's interesting, isn't it? God speaks to Ezekiel to warn Gog of what is going to happen. He will be turned back with hooks in his jaws. He will be, as it were, steered like a horse is steered with, the, with a bridle. He, he will be forced to do just what God requires him and placed where God requires him. And God will bring him forth. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? We, we might expect uh, to, to think of God driving him back. And of course, that is going to happen. But before he is defeated, God speaks of himself as being the one who brings him forth. He brings him forth against his people. And doubtless, as we think of that, we can think of the Assyrians, and as Isaiah puts it, they are going to be the, the, the tool in the hand of God, but they think not so. They look and say, look what I have done, what I have conquered, what I have done, but they're in the hand of God. And when he has, his work is finished, with them... So were they finished. And so it will be here. Many days thou shalt be visited. He's speaking to Gog. In the latter days thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste, but it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. 
Now, that's a, a rather convoluted thing, isn't it? It seems, as I read this, that these people are gathered, they're ready. But then they see their opportunity. In the latter years, in the last time, we, we might be more familiar with that phraseology, thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword. Now, we've been reminded uh, repeatedly, and we were this afternoon, that this book of Ezekiel um, is set, the prophecy of Ezekiel is set while he has been carried out from Israel. He is there by the river Kibar. And we know that it, has been, it had been prophesied. Jeremiah tells us exactly when that will be, after the 70 years is accomplished. Isaiah tells us that there will be one Cyrus who is raised up to bring the people back. But that happened. We have the record of that all over the place, don't we, in the word of God. But God didn't come. This event here hasn't taken place after many days. This isn't that coming back from Babylon. This is the gathering in of Israel from all nations where they've been dispersed. Gathered out of many people. Really, at the time of Nebuchadnezzar, they were gathered together, they were split about a bit, but they were all only one empire, they, and they were fairly close by. The word of God speaks of them being gathered out of all people, many people. But after they have been gathered back into the land, as we were reminded this afternoon, then we see that there is this opportunity for another attack to come. The people are dwelling safely. They're at rest in verse 11. They are a land of unwalled villages. Cities, in the word of God, we would call them towns really, but cities were those that had walls around them. They were protected. It took some serious attack to get into the cities. We think of the walls of Jericho as they had to be patrolled round to, they, they, they did protected the people and what would happen was that the villages that were outside in times of danger would go into the cities and they would shelter there behind the refuge but Gog sees this and he sees his opportunity he can sweep through the land he can take over these unwalled villages he can attack the people and everything will be very easy and it is very easy, solemnly easy. 
Verse 9, thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands and many people with thee. Well, we've seen very graphic pictures of the destruction caused by storms, haven't we, over the last few weeks. And this army is a fierce army. And it comes and it wreaks destruction. They come against these defenceless people having neither bars nor gates to take a spoil, to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited. They have been desolate. Nobody bothered about these, these places. They were waste places. But now they're inhabited again. Just as a comment, but that has already become true, hasn't it? The promised land was always promised as a land flowing with milk and honey. And up until 1948, it was, for a very large extent, a very desolate land, not much better than a wilderness. But as the Israelites have come back, they have tamed it, if that's the right term. They have um, irrigated it. It is a much more profitable, a much more agricultural land once again. That which had been desolate is now no longer desolate, but these people have come. The places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods, they dwell in the midst of the land. And here we have this reference to Sheba and Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions thereof shall say to thee, art thou come to take a spoil? What are you doing here? This is all going so well and now suddenly, what are you doing here? And then it's interesting, isn't it? We come to verse 14. And we kind of have a repeat again of what we've already seen. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto God, Thus saith the Lord God, In that day when my people of Israel shall dwell safely, shalt thou not know it? And thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. And thou shalt come up against my people Israel as a cloud to cover the land. Why is all this here twice? And things are repeated in God's word. It emphasizes their importance. And twice Ezekiel is instructed to deliver this message. But this time we find, and we will come to it later, why this event is to take place. 
Gog wants to get his hands on the spoil. But God says, I will bring thee against my land that the heathen may know me when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before their eyes. Solemn, fearful words. But when is this to be? We've said that it will be in the latter days, not after that first gathering back from uh, Babylon, but after the gathering together of Israel back in its land from the great dispersion. Now, we've been thinking this afternoon about chapter 37, and mention was made prior to that of chapter 36. These both speak of new life. In chapter 36, verse 24, God says, For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries, he's obviously speaking to Israel here, and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. Very wonderful words, aren't they? And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. Ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. In chapter 37, those words are repeated that last section in, in verse 23, so they shall be my people and I will be their God. And then, rather beautifully, in verse 27, my tabernacle, my, covenant, my, my covering, my dwelling place also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. There is that oneness there, this newness of life together. And we, we've seen that this afternoon, haven't we? Verse 14 in chapter 37. I shall put my spirit in you and ye shall live and I shall place you in your own land. Really repeating those things that we've just seen and again in verses 23 to 25 we spoke of the coming of Christ. David my servant shall be king over them and they, shall, or they all shall have one shepherd and they, also, they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes to do them. In the following chapters, chapter 40 to 48, we have 
the establishing of the great temple. It seems, therefore, that this takes place at the beginning of the millennial age. There are other places in scripture where these things are spoken of and they seem to uh, I can say corroborate, we don't need the word of God to corroborate, but we, we work these things through as we compare scripture with scripture and see how different uh, prophecies fit together to be fulfilled. So, for example, in Micah chapter 4, we read, But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Just in passing, notice that it's very clear that the house of the Lord will be established in the mountain. People often talk as though, um, well, this temple in Ezekiel is some sort of aberration and doesn't really fit in with the rest of what the word of God says. But it fits in exactly with what Micah is saying. He doesn't give us the details uh, and all the, um, uh, the, the measurements and everything else which are so uh, wonderfully set forth by Ezekiel, but he speaks of that happening. Carrying on. The law shall go forth of Zion and the word of, God from Jeru- and the, word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit everyone under his vine and under his fig tree. And none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts had spoken it. For all people will walk every one in the name of his God. And we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Now, notice, he will rebuke strong nations afar off. And then the swords will be turned into plowshares. We have, of course, almost identical words in Isaiah chapter 2. But that's the very opposite to what we read in Ezekiel, isn't it? There, the Plowshares were to be turned into swords. So there is this double working, as it were. But having done that, then they are approved and defeated and brought back. Joel 2, Joel as well, in Joel chapter 2, uh, and more particularly chapter 3, gives us a similar picture. Right at the end of 
chapter 2, we read of the final fulfilment of what was in essence fulfilled on Whitsun, that first great day of Pentecost after the Lord's ascension. And then at the end of that chapter, that passage, Joel says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. For behold, in those days and in that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat, and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among all the nations and parted my land. And they have cast lots for my people, and so it goes on. Now, notice that in, it's in those days, that day when the people are gathered, that God says there will be this gathering in the valley of Jehoshaphat. If we go on to verse 6, the children also of Judah and the children of Jerusalem have ye sold unto the Grecians, that ye might remove them far from their border. Behold, I will raise them out of the place where ye have sold them, and will return your recompense upon your own head. And then he goes on, verse 9. Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full. The wine press, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Now this, as I say, is very clearly after that gathering together. But the Lord is calling these nations to come. And, and that's where the um, plowshares, uh, the swords being turned into plowshares comes. But I'm sure that this gathering of the heathen is that of the gathering of Meshach and Tubal and Ethiopia and Futs and that together under Gog, of which Ezekiel is speaking. And why are they there? Because they are going to come under the judgment of God. Now, this is one of those cases where, in verse 14, it continues, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near, in the valley of decision. Now, the name Jehoshaphat means 
Jehovah judges. Here in the valley of Jehoshaphat, the decision, the judgment of God is made. In that valley is the brook Kidron. It's the valley where David went through weeping and ascended up into the Mount of Olives. And likewise, on that last day of his life upon the earth, we read of Jesus Christ doing the same thing. Now, notice that this is not the valley of Megiddo or the plain of Megiddo or Armageddon. That is a completely different place. There is a valley there, a river there, but that's the river Kishon. We read of that when um, Deborah and Barak were fighting and, and given that wonderful victory. Now, this brings us to our, our, our next point, which is, why not Antichrist? Well, there are a, a number of things that we see which don't really tie up with that comparison that we have given to us in uh, Revelation, we've already seen that that army is destroyed by fire from God. We then find him being taken and thrown into that bottomless pit. There are many other things that we, we find as we go through, which we don't find on that later attack, that later gathering in uh, Ezekiel we read of a great shaking verse 18 and it shall come to pass this is chapter 38 it shall come to pass at the same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel saith the Lord God that my fury shall come up in my face for in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel, so that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother. That shaking is referred to by the prophet Haggai. And he says that when the desire of all nations shall come, Yet once more, it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, 
and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. And it is more than likely that that reference to the uh, the earth being shaken and the mountains removed in Psalm 46 has an application to these events. But we will not fear. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Stop and think about that. It's a great comfort, isn't it? Zechariah 2 speaks of these things. Chapter 12 and verse 1. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And then again later in the chapter, chapter, verse 7 of chapter 12. The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Then again we have a reference to these things in that wonderful 14th chapter of Zechariah. And then we see... I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses rifled and the women ravished and half of the city shall go forth into captivity and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives which is before Jerusalem on the east And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof, toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Now, why? What is the significance of all this. It's very solemn, isn't it? The way that this army is destroyed. We read it in chapter 39. I will smite thy bow out of thy left hand and will cause thine arrows to fall out of thy right hand. They will be rendered defenceless. Thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and all thy bands and thy people that is with thee. I will give thee unto the ravenous birds of every sort 
and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. Thou shalt fall upon the open field, for I, the Lord, hath spoken it. And I will send a fire on Magog and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles, and they shall know that I am the Lord. That's not the army. That's the nation. Because judgment is seen afar, as well as on the army that is defeated. So, why is this? So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. And I will not let them pollute my holy name any more. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. And then we had this, the certainty this afternoon of the Lord's word. Behold, it is come and it is done, saith the Lord God. This is the day whereof I have spoken. It's thousands of years in advance when these words are spoken, but it's as definite as though it had already taken place. And all of the weapons, they're rendered useless. And we have this very solemn picture. Amongol. And we have this very solemn picture Hamongog, the multitude of Gog. What's happened to the multitude of Gog? A place there of graves in Israel. We had a valley of dry bones this afternoon, a figurative picture of the Israelites to be revived. Here we have a living army, a huge army, which are literally going to become bones. Bones which are going to be picked by the beasts and by the fowl and for seven months it will take them to bury the dead. And they will be finding odd bones here and there and there will be pointers put so that the people involved in this terrible act of burying the dead know where to find them so that judgment might be put away and the land cleansed. It's a it's a quite horrendous picture, isn't it? The multitude of Gog, this great army which has come to stand against the people. And they are destroyed. In Isaiah 54 and verse 15, we read, Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me, Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. Behold, I have created the smith that bloweth the coals in the fire, and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work. And I have created the waster to destroy. 
No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, Seth, the Lord of hosts. And in chapter 66, And I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them into the nations to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, that draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the isles afar off. These are the lands of Gog. That have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles, and they shall bring all their brethren for an offering unto the Lord, out of all nations, upon horses and in chariots and in litters and upon mules and upon swift beats, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, saith the Lord as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. That temple again, of which we will study in the next few months. Now, I mentioned... Og as well. Not just because it gives us a rather wonderful alliteration, but at the end of this chapter, which we didn't read, we have this cry to which I've already referred to the beasts to come. And in verse 18, It says, ye shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of goats, of bullocks, all of them fatlings of Bashan. Why is this great event Recorded. Why will it take place? Obviously, it comes as a warning to God's people that when they see these armies assembling again, that they will know that the Lord is in control, He is still in control, they're not going to be defeated. is the fatlings of Bashan. Og was king of Bashan. Og is referred to time and time again as we go through the Psalms along with King Zion. The Lord wrought a mighty victory and the glory of that victory is celebrated down through the ages in Israel. Gog is a far mightier adversary of the Lord's people. He's not just a people, 
foundation, but he is the head of this great conglomeration, the land of Magog, the land of Meshech, the land of Tubal, and then we've got the Gomorites and the Togmarites and the Persians and the Ethiopians. They're all there. And they will be destroyed. And they will be destroyed to the glory of God. So that the heathen will know, verse 21, I will set my glory among the heathen and all the heathen shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid upon them. So that the house of Israel will know, verse 20, so the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day and forward. That the people will know the forgiveness exists with God. Verse 23. The heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity. It was entirely just that they were taken into Babylon. It was entirely just that the nation was scattered around the world. Because they trespassed against me, Therefore hid I thy face from them, and gave them into the hand of their enemies, so they fell, so fell they all by the sword, according to their uncleanness. But therefore, verse 25, now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob, and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel. Judah and Ephraim, those sticks, joined together, the whole house of Israel. And will be jealous for my holy name. All will see. Verse 27. When I hope that they will dwell safely in the land. Verse 26. And verse 27. When I brought them again from the people. And gathered them out of their enemies' lands. And am sanctified in them. In the sight of many nations. Then shall they know. That I am the Lord their God which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them into their own land and have left none of them any more there. Neither will I hide my face any more from them. For I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. Now that ties up exactly with what we've already seen from Joel, doesn't it? But it also reminds us, in this chapter, we don't have a direct reference to the Messiah, but his spirit is there. He will be there. Israel will see him they will acknowledge him. The Spirit will teach them and they will know the presence of God with them both in this attack and in that great later attack which is to come. But they will be saved. 
Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord, said Joel, will be saved. It's a promise. And as we were reminded this afternoon, what God has prophesied and promised must happen. God will rise up. But the land of Magog and those around will be defeated. That great burial place, Hamongog, the multitude of Gog, and also I should have mentioned that that name of Hamonar, the multitude. The name will be there forever. The name of the city, the multitude. Thus shall they cleanse the land. And just like Ogavold, all the glory will go to the Lord. Well, may he help us to share in the wonder of these things and look for that day of his appointing. Amen.